From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, March 13th. I'm Marco Werman. Rising anger in Afghanistan over Sunday's village massacre. A former White House official says Washington is trying to contain the damage. The American leaders are working and leaning into this hard. They understand the Pashtunwali culture is very much about taking responsibility. It's about justice. And later, Syria plants landmines along its borders. What we've seen is that they kill almost exclusively civilians. Refugees and landmines coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The White House expressed shock when the news broke about the killing of 16 Afghan villagers, allegedly by a lone U.S. Army soldier. Today, President Obama promised a full investigation. The killing of innocent civilians is outrageous and it's unacceptable. It's not who we are as a country and it does not represent our military. And for that reason, I've directed the Pentagon to make sure that we spare no effort in conducting a full investigation. I can assure the American people and the Afghan people that we will follow the facts wherever they lead us. And we will make sure that anybody who was involved is held fully accountable with the full force of the law. The president is trying to counter growing anti-American sentiment in Afghanistan. Today, protesters in eastern Afghanistan burned Obama in effigy. And earlier, militants attacked an Afghan government delegation during a memorial service for the victims of Sunday's attack. Nick Dowling is a former National Security Council official who now advises the U.S. on cultural sensitivity issues in Afghanistan. He expects more turmoil in the coming days. The fact that you didn't see much protest and now you're starting to see more and you may see more in the days ahead certainly gives evidence and and some reason to suspect that there are enemies of peace, enemies of stability who are going to use this to further flame uh, violence against the Afghan government. One of the pieces we have to realize is that relationship has been frayed over a long period of time. To have two very different cultures at a time of war for a decade with uh, lost expectations and disappointment in a lot of things of how their leaders went. And to try to put your mind in the piece of an Afghan here, the war seems very far off to Americans' everyday lives in many ways, where it's in their front door every day. Imagine right after September 11th or in the months after that, a Muslim student at an American university you know, went on a killing spree and killed 16 people and and nine children. Imagine in the months right after September 11th how that would have created all sorts of political uh, and social uh, anger in the United States. Kind of implicit in that comparison is perhaps a a sense that this can be resolved? 
anything can be resolved with communication, with time, with respect for each other in terms of what you're doing. The American leaders are working and leaning into this hard. They understand the Pashtunwali culture is very much about taking responsibility. It's about justice. The Pashtunwali honor system, which is a very high honor culture, in a very crude way could be described as there's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of piece to this. So when a terrible tragedy like this happens, terrible wrong like this happens, an immediate sense of taking responsibility an immediate sense of justice is going to help uh, overcome that. And I think one of the statements we heard recently was Secretary of Defense Panetta saying that the individual responsible could face the death penalty. And that's an unusual thing for a Secretary of Defense to say about a pending military justice case. But I think that's going right to the Afghan sense of, is the American government taking this seriously? And will there be justice uh, in that cultural uh, sense that they understand? Can you detail what U.S. policy is in situations like this? I mean, does it start with immediate compensations for the families involved? Well, it depends on the circumstance, but that's certainly part of it. There's a, a story that I've relayed to other folks about this where there was an American convoy going through an, an Afghan village. And as you might expect, any community, even if they're pro-American or, or, or peaceful, it's going to be somewhat scary to see a military convoy coming through their community. And this convoy... It happened to come through at a time when there were families on both sides of the road and some children got separated from their parents. And, and one small child uh, tragically got scared and ran across the road to try to get to her parents. And she was struck by one of the U.S. vehicles. Uh, the driver of the vehicle, who was horrified, you know, jumped out of the vehicle, uh, ran to her. They stopped the convoy. They assembled the medics. They tried they, what they could do to save her, but they could not. Mm. That was an awful incident. What the Afghan villagers saw, though, is they saw that the Americans were immediately sharing their grief. And uh, and then the Americans went to those villagers expressing their sorrow, expressing their remorse, and also offering what we call uh, salatia payments, which is essentially it's money given to reflect some sort of wrongdoing, which mm. is consistent with uh, Pashtunwali. But it's more, it's less about the money than it is a, a recognition that you ha owe a debt that you are trying to equal and uh, recognize that the wrong that was done. Little things where civilian, you know, it may be a building that's get damaged or maybe some livestock uh, that are killed. Or little things like that can involve salacious payments. In a situation like what happened in Panjwe this week, that same principle is going to apply, but it's obviously a much more politically charged and complex uh, situation as well. Nick Dowling, very good to speak. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nick Dowling, president of security consulting firm IDS International. We shift our focus now to Syria. Activists there are warning of a new phase in the government's brutal crackdown against the opposition. They say the government's attacks are shifting north. This follows the rebel retreat from Homs, the city pounded by government shelling for most of last month. One focus now is Idlib, a city in northwest Syria, some 20 miles from the country's border with Turkey. Refugees who've crossed into Turkey describe a major offensive in the city, as Matthew Brunwasser reports. In the sleepy Turkish border town, locals pass the time playing a dominoes-like game and drinking strong black tea from tulip-shaped glasses. It's here that a Syrian refugee named Mahmoud chooses to tell his story about the government offensive in Idlib. He arrived on Saturday from Gizr al-Shigur, a town in the Idlib region, he was scouting an escape route for his family. 
He found the situation was worse than expected. If I could return to Syria to get my family and bring them here, I would. But I would be killed if I went back now because of all the snipers, tanks, and soldiers in the mountains. I'll try, but if I can't, we'll have to depend on God. He says the shooting started on Friday. Before he left, friends had warned him that the Syrian military had recently placed landmines in fields favored by refugees. On his seven-hour journey by foot, he says he saw the freshly turned earth where they had been placed. Like many Syrians nowadays, Mahmoud is well-versed in the esoteric world of military hardware he saw on the way. A huge number of tanks, APCs, about 40 BMB tanks, 50 or 60 vehicles with soldiers, 10 to 15 cannons, and there should be a militia pickup trucks with machine guns mounted in the back. I saw this convoy with my own eyes as I was leaving. There are reports today of fighting in Idlib between the Free Syrian Army rebel movement and government forces. Mustafa Haid is a Syrian human rights researcher. He says that the military is moving to control the city before international demands are realized for a humanitarian corridor to deliver aid. The talk about these secure lines for the humanitarian aid and the buffer zone, start, like some countries start talking about that. It sounds that the regime knew Idlib would be the perfect place to do such thing. And this is why also they want to make sure that they will keep Idlib in control. Haid says he saw the mines in the field during his research. And this kind of mines, it's Russian-made. It's called BMN2. And it's a pressure mine. It's only 15 kilograms to explode it. It's not 30 or 40. It's even anti-children. Which means that they didn't put it there because they are afraid from FSA, you know, going back and forth to Turkey. They are placed in known refugee crossings. Haid met a Syrian living along the border who received anti-mining training during his military service. The man personally removed 300 mines near his home, but had no training in how to defuse them. He crossed like 10 kilometers carrying this in his hand to show it to me, just to take photo for that, to make proof that... They are putting landmines. Leaders of the Free Syrian Army believe the new Assad offensive is about projecting power rather than capturing land. Captain Iham al-Kurdi is an FSA commander. He says the government has been sending forces to Idlib for several weeks. Al-Kurdi doesn't expect Assad to destroy the entire city, but just a neighborhood, to set an example. He wants to terrorize Idlib by staging strategic attacks and creating maximum terror among the civilians. He's making a massacre in each city in the north, just like they did in Hama in the massacre of 1982. The rest of the country was so afraid that they didn't even react. Al-Kurdi says Idlib has opposed the regime since Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, first took power in the 1970s. Recent government gains have driven almost all of the rebels out of the cities. Al-Kurdi says Idlib will be a hard battle, and a long battle, because the mountainous terrain of northern Syria is favorable to the rebels' guerrilla tactics. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Antakya, Turkey. You can see pictures of the refugees along the Syria-Turkey border. There's a slideshow at theworld.org. We're going to hear more about those landmines now. Today, the group Human Rights Watch released a report on the mines planted by Syria along its borders with Turkey and Lebanon. Steve Goose is the group's arms division director. We have eyewitnesses to the mine laying. We have former Syrian deminers, the guys who pulled the mines out of the ground, uh, giving us great details about it. 
And we've even talked to some of the, the victims, those who stepped on mines but managed to survive. And what kind of mines are these and where specifically have they been planted? We have found both anti-personnel mines and anti-vehicle mines. Anti-personnel mines have been banned by most of the world, as well as some anti-vehicle mines, the type that go off when a tank or a car or a horse cart go over them. We found them on both the Lebanese border and on the border with Turkey. And what we've seen is that they kill almost exclusively civilians. And civilians apparently have already been injured by these mines along Syria's border. You heard from a 15-year-old boy who was maimed. Tell us his story. This is a, a boy who had seen landmines being planted, but not in this particular area. And he went out at night and thought that he was in a safe area and instead uh, ended up stepping on a mine. Uh, he survived. One of the things about anti-personnel mines is actually they're designed to maim you rather than to kill you. These mines seem to be laid primarily on the routes that are being used by refugees. Just a hor horrific notion that those who are trying to get out of Syria because they fear for their lives are instead losing lives and limbs to these anti-personnel mines. So break it down for us. What does it seem then is the purpose of uh, mining Syria's borders and who do you think is doing it? Well, we know it's the Syrian army. Uh, they've been seen doing it. The fact that they're being laid on areas where refugees are leaving leads one to conclude that they're either trying to control the movement of the population, to stop them from leaving, or possibly to cause injuries from those that they may view as being part of the opposition. Now, Syria isn't thought to be a producer of landmines. Uh, where then might these mines be coming from? These are either Russian or Soviet-supplied mines. Even though Russia hasn't joined the treaty banning the weapon, Russia has had a prohibition on the export of the weapon since 1994 as part of the movement to ban the weapon. And uh, we have no evidence that they've shipped any mines since 1994. So these are probably very old uh, Russian or very old Soviet mines that uh, Syria received several decades ago. Steve Goose, director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's primary day in Alabama and Mississippi. Last year, Alabama became known for a tough crackdown on illegal immigration. State leaders there said they acted when Congress failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform. That includes the DREAM Act, the bill that would provide a path to citizenship for young people brought to the U.S. illegally as children. The legislation has languished in Congress, though more than 90 percent of Latinos across the country support it. Generally speaking, Democrats on the Hill favor the bill while Republicans oppose it. And Democrats want Latino voters to know this. The world's Jason Margolis has more from Las Vegas. Astrid Silva moved from Mexico to Nevada when she was four. She's now 23. She and her parents came here illegally. She was an honor roll student in high school. It wasn't until she was applying to college that her parents told her about her illegal status. You know, trying to do... Uh, SATs, they asked for a social, and I asked my parents, and, you know, they said, well, this is the deal that, you know, you don't have a status here in the United States. And how did that make you feel? 
Um, it was definitely a very big uh, punch, punch in the stomach, just that, that wind taken out of you that my whole life I had been raised here, I, you know, I feel more American than anything else. And just all in one second it was taken away because of that inability to pursue my dreams. Silva is what's called a dreamer, someone who would benefit from the passage of the DREAM Act. The bill would allow those who came to the U.S. as minors a chance to become citizens, but they would also have to demonstrate good moral character. They'd also need to serve in the military or attend college. The bill is widely supported by Democrats in Congress and President Obama. Most Republicans in Congress, as well as all the Republican presidential candidates, oppose it. They argue that people who entered the U.S. illegally shouldn't be rewarded. Silva says it's time for people like her to come out of the shadows and be heard. You know, you can only expect voters to to go so far without putting a face on this. You know, it's just another issue to everybody else. Even though to me it's my life, to somebody else it's just the dream act. They don't know what it is. Most Latinos do know what it is, though, says Fernando Romero, president of the Nevada group Hispanics in Politics. It is very important, and it's in the, in, in the lips of every Latino that I know. And as, sometimes as little as as we may know about politics in general, we know what the DREAM Act is. Romero stresses that the DREAM Act is not a general amnesty. The bill has strict parameters and would benefit an estimated 800,000 young people. And when so few people who would be la creme de la creme, children who every one of us as parents would want to have, and yet it's still being fought against by the Republican Party, that is really drawing a lot of ire. It's really causing many, many uh, Latinos and, and immigrants in general to be against the Republican Party. Republican political strategist Dan Burdish in Las Vegas says it's more complicated than that. He says Republican candidates don't have a blanket opposition to the DREAM Act, but he says the legislation, as it's currently written, is flawed. I.e., you can't come into this country when you're 14 or 15 years old, stay 15 years, and then become a citizen. Um, There's something basically wrong with that. Burdish ran the Newt Gingrich campaign in Nevada. Gingrich has said he'd support a DREAM Act, but only for young immigrants who join the military. The issue isn't limited to presidential politics. Nevada Republican Senator Dean Heller is in a tight re-election race here, and he's taken a lot of heat for opposing the DREAM Act. Heller's office did not return repeated interview requests for this story. But Republican strategist Dan Burdish says Democrats are taking this issue and running with it. And it's very easy for them to say Dean Heller opposes the DREAM Act because most Hispanics are going to know what the, what the DREAM Act is. So if they know what the DREAM Act is and they're for it, then it's going to be a wedge issue. And I don't blame them. If I had a wedge issue, I'd be using it against them too. Political scientist David Damore at UNLV also thinks the Democrats are playing politics here. But the strategy could work. He says Republican opposition to the DREAM Act may play well to the party base, but is politically short-sighted. You know, in a, in a Republican primary, that may help you out. But if you do get through that Republican primary, you have to compete in the general election. And that's one of the reasons this time around the Democrats think they have a real good shot at Arizona. That's up for debate. Arizona has voted for the Republican candidate in nine of the last ten presidential elections. But the state is now 30 percent Hispanic. And if Democrats can muster enough anger around Republican opposition to immigration reform, maybe Arizona can become a swing state. The question is, though, will Latinos in states like Arizona and Nevada show up in mass come November? 
Fernando Romero isn't so sure. He says Hispanics may be disgusted with Republican rhetoric, but they're disappointed in President Obama. A person that they gave all their support to promised to do it for them and didn't do it. In a, at a moment, the community feels that he could have. Latinos also overwhelmingly disapprove of the record number of deportations under the Obama administration. Astrid Silva, the 23-year-old undocumented immigrant, doesn't blame President Obama for not passing immigration reform. She says he's facing a lot of opposition in Congress. Silva says she hopes her fellow Latinos come out to re-elect the president. You know, I do think that he's our only hope because I don't see any of the Republican candidates have any sort of path at all. That's a point the president echoed at a press conference last week. When asked about stalled immigration reform, Obama shifted the blame to Republicans in Congress. And he said he hopes to tackle the issue during his second term. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. You can find more of Jason's election coverage, including his report from Las Vegas on the potential voting power of Latinos. That's all at theworld.org. We're looking for an old town hall in Florence, Italy for today's GeoQuiz. The place has been buzzing with art historians lately. They're taking a closer look at a 16th century fresco by the artist Vasari. Actually, they've used high-tech probes to peek through tiny holes at what's behind the fresco. It might just be a long-lost Leonardo da Vinci mural. It's called The Battle of Anghiari and was said by some to have been one of Leonardo's finest works, although he never finished it. In any case, no one knows yet for sure if it's really there. We've got photos of the ongoing work at theworld.org. That may help you identify the fortress-like palace in Florence we want you to name. It's the city's town hall, and there's a copy of Michelangelo's David out front. We'll be back with the answer and more about that lost Leonardo mural later in the program. It's been a long, hard road fighting the war in Afghanistan, and events like the Koran burning and now this week's massacre have made it even harder. But it's not easy coming home either. When you come out, it's, it's a little bit like being the guy in the Shawshank Redemption, you know, when he just gets out of prison and he, and he goes back into society and he finds that, you know, people lie to me here, they cheat me, you know, I, I don't know what norms are and how to fit in, I have no friends. And I think that that's very true of the military as well, that when you transition out, you've lost the team that supported you. You've lost, you know, folks who are providing you with direction. This Friday, we'll present a special veterans edition of The World Coming Home. And we'll have lots more online as well at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. The Greeks say they're tired of being underestimated. Back in 2004, there was a uniform opinion from the international media that the Olympic Games would be a disaster in Athens. I remember the exact quote, the Greeks cannot host not even a tea party, never mind the Olympic Games. Rebranding Greece, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic. Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash global heroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It's a gruesome practice, but one that's not widely known. China harvests human organs from executed prisoners. In fact, most of the organ transplants done in China come from death row inmates. That's something that a Chinese health official stated this past week. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. She says it's not the first time Chinese authorities have acknowledged the practice. Officials within the Ministry of Health have said more than once over the last three or four years that about two-thirds of the organs that are used in transplants in China come from executed prisoners. Now, we don't know for sure how many executed prisoners there are per year, but estimates vary from 1,500 to five to 7,000. And there are 10,000 organ transplants per year, roughly. What we also know is that there are mobile execution buses and vans in which a prisoner is executed. This makes it easier to extract organs and to have the buses or vans at the hospitals so that the organs can be rushed in and transplanted into the person who's already on the table. Just a couple of details here, Mary Kay. How are inmates executed on these buses, these mobile death rows? It's usually by lethal injection. And the organs are taken before or after these people are executed? That's a good question because something like two-thirds of the organs are taken from death row inmates. And then uh, of the statistics I've seen, it said and 90% of those are taken from cadavers, which suggests that 10% aren't, Mm. that people would still be alive. Is there any kind of consent from either these prisoners on death row or their families for their organs to be harvested? It's sketchy. If consent is given, it's usually given under duress. There has in the past been a thriving black market in organs in China because while there are 10,000 organ transplants per year, there are 1.5 million Chinese waiting for organ transplants per year. So that's a ratio of about 150 to 1 as opposed to in the U.S. where it's like 5 to 1. So there's a lot of incentive for people who want to make a little money to look for people who are willing to sell their organs, a a kidney, for instance. The government's been cracking down on that, in fact, made it illegal in 2007 to trade in organs, but it still happens with prisoners. Um, Certainly, too, the way that transplants are done, a family could almost order up an execution. You know, we need a, a kidney, we need a liver, Um, You want to find a death row inmate with a healthy liver. And is that happening? I mean, are people being executed specifically to fill an order for an organ? Well, so there are two different things happening, right? So people are, are accused of a crime and then are on death row. And how soon they're executed and whether they're harvested for organs is a separate question. Once you're on death row, you could be executed at any time. And at that point, then, if you've got for instance, someone who's an alcoholic and someone who's not, and you're looking for a liver transplant, you'd probably pick the one who's not. Mm. Now, apparently there's some cultural beliefs in China that would actually prevent people from donating organs. Explain what those are about. Well, within the Chinese Confucian belief system, you're supposed to keep the body intact after a person dies. This is part of ancestor worship, but also just part of how people feel about their bodies being a sacred part of themselves. You shouldn't be even donating blood, much less organs. And it's a real problem. There is a huge shortage, and the government's trying to figure out how to fill at least some of the gap. 
You know, this news, Mary Kay, and then a BBC report uh, last weekend about a reality show in one Chinese province where they interviewed death row inmates just before their execution. And the show's now been canceled uh, as of last Friday. But it just makes me wonder, what is the attitude generally in China toward death row inmates? That's a really interesting question, because I think in some circles, people will say, well, if they're on death row, they must have done something wrong. But then there are other people who are more critical thinkers who know that there are a lot of people on death row who have gone through very swift trials. They've been accused by someone. There's been scanty evidence. A confession has been obtained through torture. And sometimes some of those people are executed within minutes or hours of receiving their sentence. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. Greece got a piece of good news today. The Fitch Ratings Agency upgraded Greece out of default territory for now. That's after Athens carried out the biggest debt write-down in history last week. But Greece still has a long way to go, and a lot of Europeans question whether the Greeks have it in them to turn things around. But some Greeks are fighting back, as the world's Clark Boyd reports from Athens. Think Greece these days, and you probably conjure up a picture of protesters and police clashing in front of the parliament building. No, the last two years have not been kind to Greece or its image abroad. The Greeks have swallowed harsh austerity measures. They've seen their wages and pensions slashed or their jobs axed altogether. And still, the Greeks lament, headlines across Europe routinely describe them as lazy and feckless. Many of their neighbors continue to question the Greeks' ability to turn their own economy around. But some here are trying to get Europeans to sing a different tune about Greece. Give Greece a Chance was a recent campaign by a group of Greek businessmen. The group took out full-page ads in major European newspapers. The ads read, We are hard-working, tax-paying citizens unfairly labeled with stereotypes so easily handed out to Greeks today. The ads asked Europeans to give Greeks continued support and the breathing space to get out of this vicious cycle. What we are facing right now, from my perspective, is not unique. Stratos Safioleas is involved with another effort to counter the negative stories pouring out of Greece right now. It's called Good News GR. Safioleas was in charge of international media relations for the 2004 Summer Games in Athens. Back in 2004, there was a uniform opinion from the international media that uh, the Olympic Games, which is not uh, a small task, would be a disaster in Athens. I remember the exact quote, the Greeks cannot host not even a tea party, never mind the Olympic Games. Greece, Safioleas says, proved the doubters wrong by staging what many thought was a very successful Olympics. In the case of Good News GR, he wants to highlight current stories of Greek success, not failure. That's our ambition. Once again, to be able to turn the tables around and prove to the world that we are uh, competent and we have our place in Europe as something that we deserve and not as a favor. But the trouble is that good news is hard to find these days in Greece, and optimism about the future is tempered by harsh realities. I'm not confident, but I think we have a fighting chance. That's economist and venture capitalist Aristos Doxiadis. The longer-term message cannot just be give us a chance. It has to be we have these positives, A, B, C, come and let's work together. However, you need, first of all, to have the positives on the ground before you start marketing them. And I think it's a bit early to start selling Greece aggressively to investors. And maybe that's why some efforts in Greece are starting smaller. 
Hire a Greek, for example, is a website that tries to match Greek businessmen abroad with talent back in Greece for jobs that can be done long distance. Another effort, called Repower Greece, invites Greeks to take a look at their own attitudes about themselves in this web video. Why repay our debts, reads the caption while a euro coin rolls by. It's not my job to fight tax evasion, reads another. My political connections will get me a government job. The video then offers viewers a reset button. Brady Kiesling is a former U.S. diplomat. He's lived in Greece for more than a decade. With reforms, Greece is a fantastic place to be, and people should remember that. And just living in a country with so much history, they're charming people, interesting you know, lively society that knows how to enjoy itself. And also, it does know how to work. And if that work is just put in a useful direction, the country will will be fine. That's a big if. The Give Greece a Chance ad promised Europeans that, quote, Greeks will deliver on our commitment. We have already made sacrifices. We are ready to do more. We are betting our future on this. But nobody here thinks that bringing the reality in line with that kind of rhetoric will be as easy as pushing a reset button. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Athens. Last week, Hollywood movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was honored in France. President Nicolas Sarkozy presented Weinstein with the Legion of Honor and thanked him for his contribution to international cinema. Weinstein is also a friend of French cinema. He's distributed a number of French films here in the U.S. They include the very successful Amélie back in 2001 and more recently The Artist, which took home five Academy Awards last month. Well, Weinstein is about to release more movies from France. We're going to hear about two of them. First up, Les Infidèles, or The Players, a raunchy comedy about cheating husbands. In this scene, one husband is caught in the act but still denies the evidence. The Players stars Oscar winner Jean Dujardin in a role that may shatter his smooth image here in the United States. Lisa Nesselson is a Paris-based film critic for the British magazine Screen International. She says Dujardin has been around the block when it comes to dubious roles. Jean Dujardin has just been discovered by people in America, but of course he's had a long career in a very wide range of roles in France, and uh, many of them borderline politically incorrect. This film, which he initiated, he's in uh, just about all of these sketches. It's an omnibus film. It's uh, male infidelity is seen by seven directors, only one of whom's a woman, and uh, Jean Dujardin and his good friend Gilles Lelouch not only star in it, but they co-directed the concluding episode, which is absolutely jaw-dropping. And it's quite obvious that this film is not in favor of cheating and adultery. It's really making fun of men pushing 40 who are married and happen to think that cheating is a male prerogative. But it's very raunchy. It makes bridesmaids look practically demure. You know, Jean Dujardin is now known as this kind of classy guy here in this country, a man who doesn't even need to speak. I mean, is this kind of role going to carry over for American audiences? I think anyone who goes to see it because they liked him in The Artist is going to be surprised, possibly not pleasantly so. I mean, we see him naked, strenuously having sex with um, women picked up in bars. We see him naked trying to pleasure himself in a hotel room. These are characters, but I think it'll be a bit of a shock to the system. And I think Harvey Weinstein has been called a magician. He's going to need Merlin's powers, in my opinion, to sock this 
one across. There's another French film uh, the Weinstein Company is taking on this year, uh, Entouchable, or Intouchables. It's based on, on a true story of a wealthy man who became quadriplegic after an accident and hired a young African immigrant man from the projects, Les Banlieues, to take care of him. It stars Francois Cluzet as the wealthy man and Omar Sy as the caretaker. And that's a clip of the wealthy man telling his future caretaker he won't last two weeks on the job. So, Lisa, this movie actually struck me as kind of entertaining, but it's had some terrible pre-reviews here. Variety called it offensive, but it's been hugely successful in France. Why? Hugely successful doesn't begin to cover it. It is 602% into profitability. Wow. Uh, it is the third most popular film of all time in France, exceeded only by Danny Boone's Welcome to the Sticks and Titanic. 19 million people have bought a ticket to see it in a country that's got about 60 million people. And of course, everyone's trying to figure out why. It's um, an improbable and optimistic story of friendship. That's one of the theories. It's escapism. One of the things that's got going for it is that it is, of course, based on something that really happened. An exceptionally wealthy white man in a wheelchair who needs full-time care. In real life, the gentleman who became his dear friend, the real-life guy, was in fact a man from North Africa, an Algerian, I believe. Mm. And here, the role is played by Omar Sy, who is a strapping, six-foot-tall uh, black gentleman born in France. And he is as charming in his own realm as uh, Jean Dujardin was in The Artist. He's, he's irresistible. Yeah, Omar Sy is just charismatic as can be. Well, give me an example of the predictability of the humor in Intouchables. Oh, I guess one of the more glaring examples is that the extremely wealthy white gentleman loves classical music and attends the opera and the ballet whenever he can. And the gentleman from the project likes pop music and rap and listens to Earth, Wind and Fire and dances. So it's infectious. It's a tall, healthy black man expressing the physical joy that the white guy in the wheelchair can't. Far-right politician Jean-Marie Le Pen saw Antouchable as a metaphor for France, uh, France being the quadriplegic and needing the help of uh, youth from the suburbs, which for Le Pen would just be an awful thing to happen. But Harvey Weinstein defends this movie. What's his rationale? Well, you know, I, I know there's a time limit in radio, but if there wasn't, I would just stop and laugh for a good minute or two because Jean-Marie Le Pen has been criticizing the movie in a category of film criticism that's one of my all-time favorites, which is people who haven't actually seen the film they're denigrating. <laughs> he hasn't seen it. He just doesn't like the sound of it. And uh, 19 million French people must be wrong. Um, but Harvey Weinstein, he seems quite sincere that he just loves this movie, that it touched a chord. And so he, in his enthusiasm, wanted to bring it to America. He not only wants to bring the original, he also wants to do an English language remake, which to me seems beyond redundant because one of the reasons the film works so well is that it really follows Hollywood screenwriting techniques. And so it's kind of already an American movie. It just happens to have exceptionally appealing French actors in it. Lisa Nesselson with the film magazine Screen International speaking with us from Paris. Thanks a lot, Lisa. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You can see the trailer for Intouchables at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Art researchers in Italy believe they're getting close to a breakthrough. They've been peeking through cracks in a 16th century fresco and now say they may have discovered traces of a long-lost mural by Leonardo da Vinci. 
Art historian Simonetta Brandolini joins us from Florence. So this drama, Simonetta, has been compared to the opening of King Tut's tomb in Egypt. Where is the whole thing unfolding? Well, without a doubt, it's just as exciting. The first thought that came to my head was how exciting this would be to Leonardo da Vinci himself, because this whole search really brings together both art and technology. So being both an artist and a science, I think for Leonardo da Vinci, this would have been a prime example of something that he would have been a great fan of. The the story unfolds in Palazzo Vecchio, which is the city hall of Florence. Leonardo da Vinci had been called on to paint the Battle of Anghiari on one of the walls of the great uh, hall in in City Hall in the beginning of the 1500s. So that's where the story really starts, really. Palazzo Vecchio, the City Hall of Florence, uh, is the answer to our geo-quiz. Now, the da Vinci masterpiece in question is called The Battle of Anghiari. Uh, Tell us what it depicts. Leonardo had put together a furious and and tangled mass of bodies and and horses depicting the Battle of Anghiari. It was a battle um, near Arezzo, so just south of Florence as you drive towards Rome. What he had depicted, though, was a huge, almost like a vortex of of horses and riders and soldiers and lances. So a few years after da Vinci painted the Battle of Anghiari, along comes Giorgio Vasari. Is his painting painted presumably over the Battle of Anghiari by da Vinci? (laughs) Well, that's the interesting aspect of this. Engineer uh, Dr. Maurizio Serracini has been working on this project, researching, searching for Leonardo for the last 30 years. And what has happened is that uh, the technology has advanced, obviously, in these last 30 years. So what started out um, to be just a search, first, you know, historical, he is now able to do with different technology methods. He found, in fact, up in the upper left-hand portion of this huge mural of Vasari, the green flag that says, who seeks shall find. And that seemed just like a perfect introduction that there must be something underneath. Now, you you alluded to how highly technical the whole process is, but also it's pretty simple. I mean, don't they essentially have to drill holes in Vasari's painting to see what's behind it? Actually, I I was fortunate enough to actually see these holes because Maurizio Sidicini allowed us to go up on the scaffolding a few weeks ago and to see exactly where this search was being done. Mm. These small holes were only placed so that the probe could go through in areas that were already damaged or had already been restored. They took the most care possible uh, to not damage anything that was already existing by Vasari there, but used, you know, these entrance sites that personally, I think that they did not do damage to the Vasari from what I could see and from what I saw yesterday during the press conference. What would it mean to you if the Trail of Paint Ships leads to a discovery of the Battle of Anghiari? I I just think it's, it's a fascinating mystery It's like going back into history by centuries and seeing how these layers of history were placed one on top of another. That's one of the things that most uh, intrigues me about the city of Florence and all of Italy in general and our artworks is that it, even if they were done 500 years ago, they become startling real even now. Even Leonardo would enjoy this. Art historian Simonetta Brandolini, founder of the Friends of Florence. Good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Our final segment today requires some imagination. Picture a luxury hotel. It's an isolated resort, and it's empty. You and your family are the only ones there, hired to keep an eye on the place. 
as the vast emptiness starts to get to you, perhaps you start hearing this. In case you don't recognize it, that's the creepy opening music from Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining. The psychological thriller was based on the book by Stephen King. Novel and film both take place at the Overlook Hotel somewhere in Colorado. Now imagine a different setting, a luxury hotel in Dubai. It's called El Resplandor. That's The Shining in Spanish. This track opens an imaginary soundtrack to The Shining set in Dubai. El Resplandor is an actual album, though, by the band Nettle. The whole concept was dreamt up by band leader Jace Clayton, a.k.a. DJ Rupture. The inspiration for this album is, I imagined, a remake of the Stanley Kubrick film and the Stephen King novel, but instead of being set in, you know, in a snowy Colorado hotel, imagine staging a remake of that in Dubai, in a luxury hotel in Dubai that hasn't even opened yet. So this song that we're listening to is called Empty Quarters. And Empty Quarters is, is pretty great because it both it references the liner notes um, from the album, which are written by my friend Jeff Benoog. I'm an architecture writer. In Jeff's introduction, you know, he's thinking about this hotel and the empty quarters in it, like empty rooms, empty wings. And it's this whole sort of world he, he evokes um, with this European family who's hired to take caretake this hotel in Dubai. But then also... The Empty Quarter is one of the largest deserts in the world, and it's located fairly, fairly near Dubai. And so this is kind of like a play on words. It's both, you know, both talking about this, this feeling of emptiness and the sensation of all this sort of abandoned architectures in the city. And then, of course, for those in the region who know the geography a bit, it's trying to evoke the open spaces of desert, which are quite near and quite a part of the sort of landscape of the United Arab Emirates in that part of the world. It's, it's funny, one of my sort of secret hopes in the beginning of the project that one day we would be able to, to film this, you know, to make this imaginary film real. And there's a, a friend of mine, a filmmaker by the name of Jem Cohen. I gave him the music early on, and he was recently in the United Arab Emirates. And knowing of, of this work, he started shooting some footage in Dubai. I would love, even if it's a short, you know, 15-minute evocation of some of these feelings, you know, and I was really interested... When I thought about the film as such, you know, our sort of remake, it'd be much more psychological, much more slow. It wouldn't be some sort of thriller. And so, you know, fingers crossed, um, I would love to have some of Jem's footage work out as a filmic counterpart to the album. I'd like to leave you with a final song from the album. This is called Shining One. And this is a piece I wrote with a cellist, Brent Arnold. And so with this one, although he hadn't read the book, I sat down with Brent and said, okay, this is going to be a theme song for the album. You know, I want this to be sparse and contemplative. And I sort of went on this whole, I gave him all the emotional landscape that I wanted for this. And then we sat down and we did this track, you know, and about the roots of it were laid in about two hours. And it just, boom, it just cemented into place. Um, So I think this is a nice, uh, spacious outro. That's Jace Clayton of the band Nettle talking about his album El Resplandor, The Shining in Dubai. I'm Marco Werman, safely ensconced in the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. We'll be back tomorrow.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International